sit back, relax, and enjoy the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. Today is some date, uh, June 14th, 2015, and with me is Carolina Balkenbush, a registered dietitian from Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello. And I, who didn't introduce himself last time he was in charge of the show, um, I am Christian Copley-Salem, a PhD candidate in cell molecular pharmacology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Yay. Yay. So this is our second attempt, or I shouldn't say attempt because we actually succeeded the first time, ah, um, to record the, uh, hold on, there we go. I had a minor computer meltdown. Um, this is our second time without Scott, so we are, as Carolina said last time, scot-free. <laughs> I said that? Gosh, I'm witty. <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty awesome. <sighs> so... Um, we're going to talk about some stories, and first I think we should talk about Carolina just got back, so she was gone, and where did she go? I went to Poland and to Croatia for two weeks. It was awesome. Um, my whole family lives in Poland. Um, I was born there and lived there for seven years, and so it's nice to go back every couple years to visit my dad and my grandparents and aunts and uncles. Um, last time... I went was with my husband two years ago and we went in the winter time and my husband was not a big fan of Poland in the winter so I decided we should definitely go back in the summer and it's it's much nicer it was very very beautiful nice weather everything was blooming um but really the highlight of our trip was Croatia um Croatia is a very small country um and kind of has a super super crazy history and was even in war times very recently just in like the 90s um so not a lot of people travel there for vacation especially not from the u.s but it's definitely definitely a country you should put on your radar very small very beautiful um has amazing national parks really pretty beaches crystal clear water like perfect perfect temperatures very friendly people and it's super affordable like we had a um a beachfront apartment with this huge terrace just overlooking the sea. People, no tourists around, for only $56. Wow. Yeah, it was really, really nice. Um, so I kind of want to go back there for every vacation from now on. <laughs> That's, that sounds awesome. And they have super good wines. So one of the stories I wanted to talk about today has to do with wine because we, we drank a lot of it there and it was really good. Um, but I was talking to um, the sommelier at Trader Joe's last week. And he said that he would never buy a Croatian wine. And I was kind of shocked because Croatian wines are really good. And he said that the Russian mob <laughs> kind of controls the Croatian wine export uh, oh. industry. So so I guess what you buy isn't necessarily what you're going to get. They, I guess the Russian mob might send oh. you some crap. So that's kind of oh. unfortunate. Now, now I'm wishing I had brought back some. Yeah. I did the same thing when we went to Italy. I... I didn't bring any wine back with me and there was a couple of house wines that we had that I thought were really awesome and I could have got you know like a bottle for $12 or whatever but it would have been like I guess $15 US but it, I didn't bring any back and now I'm like god kick myself yeah it's, it's kind of hard because <laughs> when you travel internationally you have those weight limits and when you're going yeah. a week or more you typically have so much other stuff yeah it's hard to fit anything else this, this, was, this yeah. was a kind of a tough trip because we made the mistake of booking my ticket under my married name, but my passport is still in my maiden name. 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> so I'm sure you can imagine it caused problems when the name on your ticket doesn't match the name on your passport. Yeah. So, but we, we I, got through it. I almost <laughs> had that problem. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. With, well, because we, um, we got our names changed on, like, let's say a Tuesday. And then I was supposed to get on a plane on, like, Friday. And I hadn't thought far enough ahead because I'd booked the flight, like, six months before that. So, and like, I hadn't put all of that together, and I, I was like, oh, God, <laughs> my plane ticket's in a different name than my real name. So I ended up using my old driver's license to try to get on the plane because I'm like, ah, uh, I don't have one that's current. There you go. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's my real name. I, I'm lying, but it doesn't matter. It's an airplane. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of sketchy so. that there's a workaround. Like, most, most yeah. of the airport security <laughs> officials just kind of did a double glance at it and I gave him a dirty look and they just let me pass. Which is probably nice. not the most secure way to go about it. But my God. Um, but how are your past two, three, maybe four weeks? They've been good. Um, we finally got, we're ready to submit the paper that I've been writing. So that should be exciting. We're going to do that next week. Awesome. Um, are you guys submitting it? Is, is it at the point in the process where you're submitting it to multiple different journals or how does that work? I don't have any idea because this will be my first merry-go-round for the submission process. Okay. So hopefully it will go smoothly, which apparently it never does. And I will, I will then once then be a veteran of the submission process. But as of now, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> a, t- so. <laughs> a tumultuous submission. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know. Well, my the postdoc that helps me with this stuff is... Um, I'm not going to use the word inconsistent. I'll use the word chaotic. Uh-huh. Um, so learning from learning from him is a is a grab as fast as you can and run away kind of process. So hopefully it'll be hopefully it'll be a fun and advent, exciting adventure and not be too terrifyingly painful. So that's happening this week. Theoretically, yes. Okay. That would he wants to submit Monday, but um, I I don't. I'm not 100% confident that that will work, so we'll see. Well, this will be cool. I'm looking forward to getting to kind of follow follow along with you through the process and see how it works. Yeah, it should be fun. I'll talk about if there's anything, you know, worthy of mentioning. If it goes really smooth, I'll just be like, well, that was, you know, easy. But otherwise, <laughs> I'll talk I'll talk about some of the, the pitfalls and things that can go wrong. Cool. Um, hopefully, there aren't a lot of them, but apparently there are. So <laughs> we will see. Um, I haven't done much else. Played some tennis, got a sunburn. Um, yeah, isn't it like crazy hot in there? It is not really too bad. It was in the it was in the low 30s, which is I I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit ish, uh, 80 something. Uh huh. So it, it wasn't too bad. Um, I got a little bit of a sunburn on my shoulders, but I I doused myself in sunblock most of the time, so bad. Otherwise, I would incinerate. <laughs> but. Yeah, that's that's about it. I lost another two and a half pounds while you were gone. Oh wow! So how much is Which, that total now? Uh, twenty-two. Nice. Ish. It, you know how I, weight is, and anyone who's ever lost weight or tried to control weight in any way knows that if you get on the scale once a day for seven days in a row, your weight will change, like dramatically change, and you have no idea why. 
Like I didn't eat enough to gain three pounds yesterday, (laughs) but then I didn't do enough today to lose the two and a half pounds that I'm going to lose by tomorrow. Like it, it's very inconsistent when you lose weight. So it's sort of the the mean over time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, they say that weighing yourself on Wednesday mornings is the best time. Is it? I guess, yeah, I guess overall statistically people weigh the least on Wednesday. Huh. I have to run my own statistics on that. I usually go with, um, the lowest weight for the week that I get, which is sort of cheating, but not really. No, I, I like mean, it. if I don't get that weight, <laughs> yeah. if I don't get it more than once, I usually don't do it. Like if I just get a weird freak thing, like I'm hungover and dehydrated and I get, you know, two pounds lighter, I don't write that down. But <laughs> if, if I get it once or twice or twice in a week or more, then I usually accept that as somewhere in the ballpark. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of cool. I've uh, been eating better and you know, the whole thing. That's awesome. Yeah, I was actually a little, little PSA for the Mediterranean diet again. A few weeks ago on the podcast, we talked about how the Mediterranean diet is considered like the healthiest um, healthiest eating style for people to be on because it includes so many healthy foods, fresh fruits, vegetables, um, healthy fats like olive oil and nuts and avocado, um, pretty low in saturated fats, so low in red meat, pretty high intake of protein from, from fish. Um, and plant sources and I basically lived off of a Mediterranean diet for the past two weeks while I was on vacation and in the Mediterranean yeah in in the Mediterranean (laughs) shockingly um and I felt pretty great like I I I felt like I I usually track my calories and everything on my fitness pal but um I didn't on this trip and I didn't gain any weight didn't have any stomach aches so that was pretty neat um I also ate a lot of octopus which Huh. Going into this trip, I had no idea about what the nutrition breakdown of octopus is. I have no idea if it's, like, high in fat or if it's, I don't know. I mean, I assumed it was pretty high in protein, but I didn't realize it's actually a very nice lean protein source. It's high in sodium, potassium, and iodine and iron. Hmm. I guess well, that awesome. octopus is a health food. It's just kind of, <laughs> kind of creepy to look at. So, I mean, I ate way too many tentacles in those little suction cups. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> That just sounds scary to me. I'm just like, ah. Yeah, but it tastes better than it looks. Awesome. So let's spin that into Science Blast. And I don't have a sound effect, but Scott will add it. Yes, Scott, Um, add it. You come back from camp and add that sound effect. (laughs) We were... We were just talking about using MyFitnessPal, and so I figure we'll just let Carolina go into her first story that has to do with keeping track of your calories and being a total liar, liar pants on fire. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so so every five years, um, the we, we, get, we get the dietary guidelines um, for Americans put out by the USDA, and basically they tell us, like, how much of everything to eat to stay healthy. And this this year, in 2015, um, they're putting out a new edition of it. And a new change to the dietary recommendations is that limiting cholesterol is going to be removed from the recommendations. In the past, um, it's been recommended to limit your cholesterol intake to less than 300 milligrams a day to basically prevent heart disease. And more recent evidence is showing that most people are not sensitive to the dietary cholesterol in their diets and it doesn't affect their serum cholesterol much and overall risk of heart disease. So that's getting removed. Um, but this kind of 
brought some attention to the way that the dietary guidelines are usually determined, and that is by asking people what they ate. It's called it's a process called dietary recall, and probably unsurprisingly, um, people are not very good at remembering what they ate. Like Christian, if I were to ask you what you <laughs> ate yesterday and how much of it you ate, would you be able to tell me everything? I am a terrible test subject because I use my fitness pal religiously. <laughs> And I have a food scale, and I literally weigh everything that I put in my mouth. So for me, maybe, but the average person, maybe not. <laughs> exactly, yes. So you, you would be the ideal candidate for this. Um, and you've <laughs> lost 22 pounds, so for a weight loss study, I guess you'd be fantastic. Right. And you'd, you'd skew the results very nicely. Um, but, <laughs> I'm the outlier. <laughs> but for most of the patients that I see in my practice and uh, – surely all of these research subjects, um, they either over-report or under-report or state what they ate based on the result that they expect to get. You know, like if they have high cholesterol and you ask them what they ate yesterday, they're more likely to report that they ate some higher fat foods just because they're, I don't know, that's kind of what they tend to believe is the cause. Um, And it's, it's very unscientific because you can't, you can't, it's not falsifiable. It's, it's just not reliable evidence. And um, this this article in Nature um, just really digs into this and talks about how research funding should not go to, to studies that use dietary recall as a research method. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I would say that the problem with it is there, we're kind of limited in how we can obtain nutrition data from people. Um, because it's very expensive to watch people constantly and control their food intake because people are just going to eat whatever they want. Um, Even if you give them instructions, the adherence to a diet is typically pretty low. Um, So this is kind of the best method we have, and and I'm sure that some evidence that's come out of this is, is valuable, like linking high intake of sugary drinks to weight gain is probably reliable evidence. Um... Right, but uh, interestingly, this this article, this journal article, points out that um, the NHANES, which is the U.S. National Health and Examination Survey, it's a very prestigious study that looked at um, thousands upon thousands of American diets, and it, looking at the research, it seems that sixty-seven point three percent of women and fifty-eight point seven percent of men reported calorie intakes that are so high or low that they're physiologically implausible. Yeah, so for this huge study, that's just a whole lot of crap data. So I'm interested to see how seriously this article is taken and whether we're going to see a shift in the types of nutrition studies coming out and whether it'll be more and more sparse or if, you know, if universities will have a harder time getting research for nutrition studies or how exactly this will all pan out. Do you do you expect it to be a huge dramatic shift based on the changing methodology, or do you think it's more of a subtle tweak um, to the overall? I think it's really just going to put more pressure on the demand for really good um, personal trackers. Like, you know how they have those Fitbits and stuff, those wearable trackers? Mm. If they can develop something that's going to make it easier yeah. or more accurate to, to track your food intake, activity intake, I think that that would help. With these types of studies, I, I was saying this earlier before we started hitting, before we hit the record button. 
I wonder if something like my fitness pal for people would help them be at least more accurate, if not yeah, totally think- accurate. Um, it does that to me. Like it makes me ridiculously accurate with what I eat. I've got a yes, scale. I, I weigh everything. So my fitness pal and something like a food scale and measuring cups. Um, my fitness pal is, is a website and app that make it very, very easy to keep a food diary. Uh, if you have the app version on a smartphone, it's, it's very convenient because you can just scan the barcodes on foods that you eat and it'll automatically track it. You just put in the amount that you ate. Um, so I think a lot of people underestimate how much of something they ate. Like if you look at a, at a chicken breast, you might think that's three ounces, but really it's probably closer to six to eight ounces. So having that food scale um, for things like that or a measuring cup for anything liquid definitely improves the accuracy. I just don't know how many people, well, what, what percentage of people would be willing to make that commitment to use a food diary and to weigh and measure everything that they eat. It, for me, it's kind of like a self self-perpetuating process because the more I eat like vegetables and good stuff, that stuff's easy to weigh. Like you just throw the, you put the plate on a scale and then as you add your stuff, the, the weight goes up and you just write down or type in the weight for each thing as it goes up. So it, it's harder with weird foods that you get at uh-huh. like eating out is a nightmare. Um, especially at little teeny restaurants. Like if you go to Red Robin or something, that's probably in the, cal- the yep. counter yeah, anyway. If it's like a little mom and pop shop, you but, kind of have to estimate what's in there. Yeah. And you're like, ah, oh, it's like one egg and I don't know if they put butter on it. Like you just, you're totally dead in the water. So, but at home, it's real easy the healthier you eat, the easier it is. Yeah, yeah, for say. sure. For me, I anyway, know, and with the weighing so. and measuring, I find that I get lazy. Like, after a while, I feel like I'm pretty good at guesstimating the amount of something I ate. But I think with time, you kind of deviate from mm. <laughs> the actual amount pretty, yeah. pretty consistently. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm terrible at it. I'm like, oh, this will be like 50 grams. And it's like 270. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> good thing I weighed that. Yeah. And I have a, I have it set up so that all my favorite vegetables, I have the 100 gram thing in my fitness pal. So I just put in point whatever the, yeah. it weighed and it just, boom, there it is. So if it weighed 20 grams, I just put in point two. And so I, so I did you notice when you were in Italy, um, nutrition facts labels on foods are all by like the 100 gram portion, which is... <sighs> Yeah, that the, well, it's a little I don't easier, know if it's to easier to use because I don't always want to be doing math when I'm trying to figure out how much I ate. <laughs> I kind of I kind of like how in the U.S. it suggests an appropriate portion because I'm not always going to be eating 100 grams of butter, and I don't really want to be dividing. <laughs> right. All those values. Right, right. That's it. I don't know. It depends on how you're like. It depends on how you're doing it. The problem with the U.S. one is that sometimes the portion sizes aren't realistic and you look at them and you're like oh i'm gonna eat this much and then you're it's like no way there's no way you're gonna eat you know half of a bottle of chocolate milk what you just basically have to double the the nutrition facts and go with it they make it look all sexy cool so um do you have a story or should i move ah i do have a story i want to talk about hiv um actually specifically I want to talk about what's called elite controllers. And that sounds kind of like a video game thing or whatever, but (laughs) um, an elite controller is actually a, an HIV patient 
who is controlling their own infection without medication. And it's kind of a weird thing to call somebody, you're an elite controller, but be cool, I guess. It What's happening is that they are generating specific proteins and or cell types as part of their immune response that is holding the virus at basically subclinical levels, which is pretty awesome if you have HIV because you're not going to suffer any of the negative effects of it. So, of course, everyone's thinking, well, who the heck are these people and how did they get this this innate immunity? And so studying this innate immunity has been a big thing um, in HIV research. And this particular group has just published a paper in PLOS One, or PLOS, PLOS Pathogens, I should say, which is basically the same thing. Um, and what they found was that there is a, a specific type of immune cell, and Scott is the immune cell expert, and it would have taken me an entire decade to research all of the details of, um, of immune cells, so I'm not going to talk about all of them. I'm just going to sort of give you the, the basic stuff. But there's what's called dendritic cells, and they their job is to, fi- to find pathogens in the blood or in tissue or whatever and create fragments for display to create antibodies to. So what happens is they take the, the invader... They chop it up, they put that on the cell surface, and that says, hey, look at this. Everything in the immune system should be attacking and killing things that have this particular fragment. Um, And then they produce cells called CD4 and CD8, which are the killer cells, and they go out and they find these targets that that have these, um, they're called antigens, presented, and they attack them and kill them. So these particular people, these... um, elite controllers were able to produce better controlling cells to attack HIV than were non-elite controllers. And what they found was that the pro- they were producing specific proteins within these cells that were different or slightly out of proportion with normal people. And they were producing what's called uh, SAMDH1 and CGAS, which I have no idea what those acronyms stand for, but I don't think that's even relevant anyway. And what their, us- what their job is, is to block reverse transcription. So viruses come basically in two flavors. They either have DNA or RNA packaged up in their little, their little pod. So if they have a DNA package, their genome is DNA, all they do is just they can start copying and making proteins and doing things right away. If they're an RNA virus, they have to copy that RNA into DNA before they can do anything with it. And so they usually come packaged in their little viral coat. They come with the protein reverse transcriptase, which is a great target for drugs because it's not in the human body. Human has no use for that at all. So the presence of reverse transcriptase usually indicates that you have some sort of virus, and they call them retroviruses. And all that means is that you're taking RNA and you're going back to DNA. It's sort of the reverse of what's normal. So anything that attacks these reverse transcriptase enzymes can knock down these cells. But of course, they mutate them and they're hard to target, and um, each one is unique. So the reverse transcriptase that's in HIV is different than the one that's in the herpes virus. 
so on and so forth. So they're a good target, but they're also a, a moving target. So these cells were able to produce proteins that interfered with the reverse transcriptase enzyme and keep it under control. So HIV was not able to replicate fast enough to get out from under the immune response. So it's kind of cool that this particular genomic variation within these people, which they haven't even nailed that down yet. We don't know exactly what changes are in the, the genome of these elite controllers that allows them to do this. But if we can get our hands on that, we could very well produce um, sort of the capability of knocking down HIV, maybe even without drugs using, you know, gene gene splicing and whatever, which has never worked really before. So who knows? But it, it's great to know that we have some more targets and, and have a little bit better understanding of how the people who are innately immune to HIV are pulling that off while everyone else is sort of yeah, at that risk. That is pretty cool. So do you, do you think that so, further research yeah. into this is far off or do you think it's something that could happen pretty quickly? Um, this is This is one of those sort of test tube in the lab kind of studies. I don't, I looked at their data and I'm not, I don't like the way they graphed it. They did a, they did a dot scatter, um, which I've never even used this kind of graphing before, but it's where they have a center line and everything scatters out from it. And so I'm no good at reading them, but, and then they did heat plots, which I hate heat plots. I don't that's the one kind of graph I just don't get. I don't get heat plots at all. Um, they're, I know they're simple, but it just they irritate me, and I think they're a terrible way to display data. But it, it, it looks like this is going to be something that, that requires a lot, a lot more work. It, it's hard to say, though, because sometimes this stuff, if it ends up being solid, can explode. And if it ends up being weak, will just sort of peter out. So um, I would say... I would say this could go from they're going to have to find a drug too though that targets these this enzyme or um that's based on this stuff. So I don't know. I I feel like it's going to be a while. I feel you like know, it's no, going to no, be a while. Sorry, another, we, another have, interesting thing in that um uh well, I should, I should actually probably make a correction. The actual um article about the inadmissibility of uh, nutrition data was was published in Mayo clinic proceedings mm -hmm. um but then the article about that article oh, okay. was in nature <laughs> um but that article in <laughs> awesome. nature about the article in mayo <laughs> proceedings um also mentions that we spend awesome. it's like an insane amount of money like is it 5.8 or 58 billion dollars on research that's not reproducible each year oh yeah it's 28 billion dollars a year on research yeah. that is not reproducible which is crazy. So it's just interesting. Whenever I see, whenever yeah. I hear stories, I always wonder if it's something we'll ever hear about again. So hopefully, in the case of HIV and uh, potential breakthroughs, it is definitely yeah. something we'll be hearing more about. Yeah, and this is something that, well, this is just one story. The way that si the best science is done is you get a preponderance of evidence from multiple studies and sources, and it starts to be, it starts to be ridiculous for it to be false and that's when people start to really take it seriously so we'll see if like you said other people can even replicate this or um 
if it's, it may be a more complicated story. So it'll be interesting to watch, and hopefully it'll yep. hopefully it'll turn into something awesome. So, so I hear you have yeah, another I have two interesting little mini interesting things to talk about. Um, so while we were in Croatia, I, cool. uh, we were drinking lots of wine, and it was all very delicious. And Colby asked me whether <laughs> sulfites in wine are bad for you or not. And so, Christian, do you know the answer to that? I want the answer to be <laughs> The answer no. is no. Woo-hoo. Um, pretty much all Yay. bottles of wine that you buy in the U.S. are going to say contain sulfites on the label, just in black. And it's kind of scary looking because why would they write that if it's not bad for you? Um, well, it's an allergen. There are people, prob- probably less than 1% of people in the U.S., who are allergic to sulfites. And sulfites are basically uh so2 uh it's a it's a compound that's used as an antioxidant and a preservative for wines to preserve the flavor so it doesn't turn rancid or like weird during transport um it also occurs naturally um in the wine during the winemaking process so people who have asthma are much more likely to have an allergy to sulfites than people who don't have asthma and if you do have an allergy you can have a pretty bad reaction but most people don't um, a lot of people say that they get headaches from red wine because of the sulfites in it but that's actually not true there are other compounds in wine that are much more likely to cause a headache than sulfites are um, things like the histamines in wine and tannins and the alcohol itself um, so um, there is such a thing as organic wine and organic wine doesn't contain um sulfites or it actually contains a very minimum amount of sulfites because none are added during the winemaking process. So organic wine has less than 10 parts per million of sulfite in the bottle. So if you have a sulfite allergy, that would be the kind of wine that you'd want to look for. But otherwise, you're probably good to go. Um, A lot of people think that red wine has more sulfites than white wine, but it's actually the opposite. White wine typically has a little bit more. Mm. And there's a cap on how much sulfite you can put in a wine. I think it's 210 parts per million for um, white wine. And I think it's 180, either 160 or 180 for red wine parts per million. Um, And sulfites are, are, uh, you know, definitely serve a purpose um, for preserving the flavor of wine. But you're actually much more likely to get sulfites from other foods than from wine. Um, Dried fruit actually has far, far higher levels of sulfites than wine does. So next time you see that contains sulfites label on your wine, don't even worry about it. And if somebody tries to tell you that they have a headache from sulfites, tell them they're probably full of crap. And if they think... And if you think that they are, if they think they're allergic to sulfites, have them eat a dried apricot and see if they start sneezing. If they don't, then they're probably not. And it would be, it wouldn't be just like a headache reaction. It would be like a legitimate yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily reaction. think it's always anaphylaxis. Since it's more likely to happen with asthma, I'm sure it is okay. kind of more of a respiratory reaction, like maybe difficulty breathing or swelling of the airways or, or the sneezing too. Oh, okay. Doesn't seem like something you could well, have and not know about it. something that could develop over time, potentially. Um, oh. That's my worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> to become allergic to wine. Yeah, but you, you, you would still be able to drink wine. There's still lots that you could buy. You just have to drink them fresh. So if you drink like an organic sulfite-free wine, you would want to buy it like fairly locally from 
um, from a vineyard where they didn't have to transport it very far across the country. And you would want to like basically have perfect conditions for it and drink it within six months of production. Yep. Uh, Okay. Well, I can probably handle all of that. For the sake of being able to drink wine. (laughs) Put it to the test. Yep. Awesome. So it's kind of like yes, PKU. Yes, just like PKU, where it, it's, it, uh, they have to put that it's not safe for, you know, kill, however you say it, keto urex. Um, yeah, PKU. <laughs> but, it, and, and that sounds scary on the label, but it's really only, it really only concerns people who have the condition. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Oh. I did not. Uh, I you brought, brought a one. very good one. I am a champion. <laughs> are all little minis. So last little <laughs> mini thing um, that I wanted to mention is this was kind of interesting and something to maybe kind of keep keep a, keep your eyes and ears open about. Um, there was a, a one of the top headlines on Science Daily yesterday was uh, comes from the European League Against Rheumatism, and they did a very small study um, on thirty nine women. And uh, these are women who have musculoskeletal pain. Um, and so they were taking various non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. They were taking either naproxen, um, etorixib, which I don't believe is approved in the U.S. for use, and diclofenac, which is approved for use in the U.S. These are various... Um, these are various over-the-counter medications, basically, that you can take for muscle pain. And they found that women who took these medications for 10 days were much less likely to ovulate. So these common drugs could actually affect fertility quite oh. a bit. Um, old, the, this um, article says that only 6.3% of women who are on the diclofenac um, ovulated. Um, only 25% of the women on naproxen and 27.3% of the women on the et- Etoricoxib ovulated versus 100% of the control group. Yeah, so pretty crazy. Oh, wow. And I, and it kind of makes me wonder whether aspirin has a similar effect and ibuprofen, some of the more commonly used, even more commonly used non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And I'm kind of wondering about what the mechanism is. This study doesn't really go into that, but I know from um, the work that that my um, my cardiology practice has been doing, we've seen that women who use these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs in late pregnancy um, can have problems with their baby um, and the fetal heart just because they, they, these, um, the, the mechanism of NSAIDs is that they prevent the conversion of um, arachidonic acid into prostaglandins and that can have different systemic effects on different different parts of both the women's body and the fetal body uh, and can cause can cause problems. Um, it's not just affecting the target area. So if you're taking ibuprofen just for muscle pain, for example, um, you could be affecting a whole bunch of other organ systems as well. So I'm wondering if taking ibuprofen for muscle pain could be affecting ovulation, especially since a lot of women who are sore a lot of the time um, or who maybe are having like bad cramps from their period are taking a lot of ibuprofen and if that's affecting their fertility levels. So I don't know. I mean, this is kind of early phase stuff right now, but I thought it was pretty interesting. Definitely caught my attention. So. Yeah, that seems like it would be pretty common. I mean, if you're talking about 25% 
a 75% reduction in ovulation, that would be Yeah. Well, and I don't know what That's a huge effect. I kind of wonder like what percentage of people are actually taking these types of medications on a daily basis. You're not really supposed to, but a lot of people figure that they can just because it's yeah, that's true. medication. And side effects aren't that well. Yeah. We would think and that then, side effects aren't that serious. Were they taking the recommended dose? Um, like I think they, they were taking, taking the recommended than... dose because they were taking it f- for, like, osteoarthritic pain, yeah. Specifically for pain? So. Okay. Yeah, I know, I know that I have once in a while exceeded the amount of ibuprofen that I should take in one day. But, you know, yes. oh well, my liver <laughs> hates me. It's fine. <laughs> I used to get really bad, I wouldn't call them migraine headaches, but I think they were caffeine-induced. But I'd get really bad headaches and take, um, you know, six ibuprofen, which is above the 800 recommended. Yeah. So, But I stopped doing that when I found out, oh, yeah, that'll kill your liver. Like, <laughs> well, oh, okay. okay, so when I, when I was in Europe, I found that the, the coffee they give you is just so small. Like, you order a coffee with milk and they give you, like, a little espresso. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I was, like, having left. caffeine withdrawal. <laughs> Um, and so I was constantly having headaches and for oh, the first few days of the trip, I was taking ibuprofen. Um, and I couldn't poop at all. Like I was just super constipated and Colby's, oh, Colby's suggested that, well, maybe ibuprofen is causing you to be constipated. I said, there's no way, there's no way that's the side effect of ibuprofen. That's just, that's silly. And I looked it up and of course it is a potential side effect. So, and sure enough, as soon as I stopped taking ibuprofen, <laughs> so, yep. There it is. Boom. So don't Boom. take too much ibuprofen. That's awesome. <laughs> Drink your water. Yeah, there you go. Or just in general, because yeah, you know, kill your liver and you can't, can't ovulate. So there you are. It's <laughs> so, so new, yeah, newest, right. newest type that seems of, to be sort of a lose lose all over. Oh, and by by the way, I guess the way that it um, yeah. prevents ovulation is it messes with your progesterone levels, drops them super low. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's a huge. It's a huge thing. Yes. We should probably talk about that cycle sometime. Maybe I'll we do that. We should talk about that, and we should um, also talk week. about a, um, ethnicity. Because with this whole transgender, transracial stuff in the media, I think it'd be kind of interesting to talk about whether ethnicity is an actual oh, yeah. thing or if it's just a social construct that's been created. Yeah, I saw some articles on that. I'll, I'll definitely have to tackle that. That'll be something that, that will make Scott cringe because he, <laughs> he's afraid. Uh, <laughs> it's a little controversial for his, yes, his blood, yeah, but I'm the one that I'll do it. I don't care. <laughs> Awesome. That's like a perfect so, length episode. This um, is great. I think we can, we, yeah, we can wrap this up. We almost did a complete episode as opposed to the little mini uh-huh. one we did last time we were by ourselves. Yay. We left us alone <laughs> in the sandbox and we did a good job. Yay. Oh, we're growing up so fast. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, we will, uh, we're going to have an, Awkward ending, I guess. I don't have any jokes because I, I don't participate in that segment. Because yeah. um, you do. Why okay, let's hear was it. the mushroom driving a convertible? Because he was a fun why? guy. Oh wow! <laughs> That's all you get. Oh, there's our awkward ending, and I am obligated to say something about Twitter, yes. something about Facebook, something about Scott's need to be validated by your comments on iTunes. And yes, so leave us comments on it. iTunes, follow us on Twitter, at Beta Sandwich, and like our Facebook page as well. 
maybe eventually we'll get on Snapchat and Periscope oh, yeah. and all these other social media platforms. Yay! Yeah. That would be fun, but not. <laughs> all right, guys. Have a good week. Awesome. Bye. All right. Bye. Oh, I need to stop.